Mars One is a, was a Dutch organization that was committed to be the first to establish a human colony, a permanent human colony, on Mars. To achieve that goal, back in 2013, they had an open application season where people who wanted to do this could apply. 202,000 people from 140 countries applied for the one-way trip uh, to be the first settlers. Now, soon after that application process was opened, MIT did a feasibility study about this trip and concluded that anybody that would go on it, it was going to be a suicide mission. They looked at the particulars of the challenges to not only transport people to Mars, but to set up a sustainable colony there. And their conclusion was, we currently do not have the technology to address these challenges. Anybody going is going to die within the first 60 days. Almost nobody backed out. It was interesting that just before Mars One came out publicly about their intentions, the Hayden Planetarium in New York City issued an invitation to anybody who wanted to apply to be part of a crew to take the first journey to go live on another planet. 18,000 people in the New York City area applied for this. The planetarium then took all those applications and gave them to a group of psychologists who carefully examined them, and then came to the conclusion that the vast majority of those who had applied did so because they were discouraged with their life here and hoped that they would find a new life somewhere else. Has anybody ever lived by the ocean in, in your lifetime? Okay, if you have, you know if you have lived by the ocean that it is really different than lake life here in Minnesota. One example of that is you can tell real easily if the tide is out. Just use your nose. <laughs> there is a very distinctive odor at low tide. It's a, it's a potent combination of drying mud, rotting vegetation, salt water, and dead fish. Some people say it just flat stinks. And that is a perfect imagery for what life feels like when we get discouraged. We feel like we're stuck in the mud, that something is rotting around us, that maybe possibly something very important has died. Our whole senses become alert and aware, and our conclusion is that life just flat stinks right now for us. See, when, when we're discouraged, there's very little joy, is there? When we're discouraged, it's hard to be positive. When we're discouraged, we don't spend much time looking forward. We spend more time looking backward. When we're discouraged, we flip-flop between being passive and then being overly aggressive. We've got more questions than we have answers. And then on top of all of that, we're when we're discouraged, we tend to lack courage or the confidence to face another day as our energy level just seems to tank. And that's why so many people are willing 
to have a one-way ticket to another planet. They would love to find a new life somewhere else. The only problem is no matter where we move, we take ourselves with us. We can't get rid of discouragement by making a physical move for this powerful and intense emotion that we're going to talk about this morning is not an environmental issue. It's a heart issue. And that demands a whole different approach than packing a suitcase and taking a trip. Psalms chapter 5 is where we're going to land this morning. If you have your Bibles open there or open them up on your device, whichever one you have this morning, this psalm records David's personal insights about discouragement. And he opens up his heart to let us see his struggle that he has with this. But the psalm does more than just reveal the battle, fortunately. The psalm also points us to how we can find victory in it. Notice as we're going to examine these uh, 12 verses that it begins by pointing out that when our life is at low tide, the dominant emotion is one of sadness. That's the word I'm going to use this morning. You may have a different word that you would prefer to use than sadness. It could be that you're discouraged. It could be that you're depressed. You have the blues. You're dejected. You're feeling melancholy. That's okay. I visited an, in, an individual once when I was a permanent senior pastor in a church who had been committed by his family to a mental institution for 72 hours because in a drunken state, he had downed some pain pills and then made a reference to ending his own life. By the time I was allowed to visit him, he was sober. And he described to me how his life had gotten to this point. And he mentioned, I'm just so tired of always feeling sad. This is a very powerful and intense emotion. And if we're not careful, it has the capacity to drive us into making stupid or reckless choices. That's why it's important to understand that sadness is a signal we cannot afford to ignore. Verse 1 of Psalm 5, David writes, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Notice how David identifies this emotion by the physical expression of groaning. Or in some of your translations you're using, it says, by sighing. The Hebrew word that he uses there means a barely audible utterance. It's the description of a heavy heart which moves a person to sigh deeply. Now, real quickly, let me mention that just because a person sighs does not mean they're depressed. Um, it doesn't automatically mean that they're sad. But if sighing is a regular part of our lives, then there is something stirring deep inside of us that we need to pay attention to. I mean, what, why do we sigh? Why do we get discouraged? Why do we live sometimes with a sadness? Well, usually it's when life has not turned out the way we planned, 
when we unexpectedly face a series of painful events, when our expectations aren't met, when we live under constant pressure that we don't want, when we face failure, when we face deep regrets, when our life feels out of control. I mean, smell it, that's life at low tide. And when life stinks like that, the natural response is, obviously, I'm going to do something about it. And like my friend, he doesn't want to say sad all the time, neither do we. Now, because of the unique nature of, of sadness or, or discouragement, we tend to want to deal with it in one of three ways. So, if our sadness is a result of that which is painful, we often act in ways to feel better, even if it's just for a short period of time to get relief. Second, if our sadness is a result of unrelenting pressure, then that's when we really do want to find relief from the pressure. Or third, if our sadness is a result of being puzzled or perplexed, then we often act to figure things out. The important thing is to recognize what's going on in our hearts, to identify both the nature and the of the sadness and the, way we're and the way we're tending to respond to it. But David wants to take our response to pressure beyond those three and elevate it to a whole new level. Notice verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, sadness should be our signal to pray. Look at how in these first three verses David uses words like Give ear to me, Lord. Give attention uh, to what I'm saying. Hear my voice. In other words, David's instinctive response to this powerful, moving expression of sadness is to pray. And by the way, listen carefully. He allows the heaviness of his heart to be a weight that pulls him down to his knees. And look in verse 2, who he prays to. He says, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. There are two powerful observations to make right here. First, when we're sad, none of us will honestly consider prayer to be vital to us unless we see God as my God. In other words, as long as we think God is simply a moral philosophy that tries to guide our choices, or He's the God of my parents and who they believe in, or He's simply a higher power of some kind, we're never going to recognize the importance of prayer. But once we come to know and believe that God is my God, that He cares about us, that He wants to help us, that He stands ready to defend and to bless us, then praying about our discouragement becomes an instinctive response. But notice that, God, that David does more than just pray to my God. Notice there in verse 2, he's also praying to God as my king. What I find fascinating about that is who wrote the psalm? David. Who was David or what was his role? Well, he was the king of Israel. Ooh. So even though David is the king of Israel, he recognizes that he is under 
the authority of God as king. So he is not free to struggle with his sadness by whatever means he thinks might help him. Yeah, being discouraged, it's a signal for us to pray. And that's why in verse 3, notice this is how we are to pray about it. Verse 3, David says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Praying about his sadness is one of the first things David does each morning. He begins the day by seeking God's perspective and his help about where his heart is. And then notice in verse 3, we've got that interesting phrase, I prepare a sacrifice for you. David sees his prayer in much the same way as Leviticus instructed the priests to carefully and orderly lay out the animal of sacrifice on the altar. So David, in the same kind of way, in an organized and thoughtful way, prays about this emotion almost as if it's an act of worship to God. By the way, it'll be a tremendous help for any of us to follow David's example here. When we recognize the deeply moving emotion of sadness, then in the morning, before we go out and just start the rest of our day, take time to pray about it. Lay it all out there before the Lord. Tell Him what you're feeling. Tell Him um, where it hurts. Tell Him why it hurts. And, and where do you need His help? In other words, prepare your own sacrifice before God as an act of worship, and then watch, wait, ask Him to meet you in your sadness, and He will. See, what these opening three verses do is reveals that we can't afford to be nonchalant about this powerful and intense emotion, because something can move us deeply and we need to be aware of it. Now, what David does here in the rest of the psalm from verse 4 all the way down to the end of it is he now turns and mentions that when our life is at low tide, we've got to be careful about our choices. Again, let's back up and remember something. When we're sad, we tend to want three things. We want to feel better, we want to find relief, and we want to figure things out. The question is, how do we go about doing that? Davis war David warns us now about the choices we make when we're sad. We can either make godly choices, as he's going to point out in the psalm, or we can make ungodly choices. He first mentions that we need to choose carefully how we deal with our sadness. Look at verse 4. David writes, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And you're thinking, what in the world does that have to do with the emotion of sadness? You see what David's doing here? He's warning us about the choices we make when we're sad, and these choices could be ungodly ones. So David is describing there from verse 4 down to verse 6 what God thinks of people who choose 
to deal with their sadness in an evil or ungodly way. Notice, and by the way, this can be a temptation for all of us in this room. Verse 4 to verse 6 shows how we can be tempted to try methods of dealing with our sadness that are flat morally wrong. We can make choices out of our arrogance or pride. We can actually start telling lies. We can be very deceptive with other people about what's going on in us. Or if push comes to shove and it gets bad enough, it could be actually an act of murder. See, David wants us to understand God takes no pleasure in that. He won't let the wicked dwell with him. The arrogant cannot stand in his presence. He hates wrong. He will destroy them. He abhors all of those ungodly choices. So we, too, can't afford to let sadness pressure us into those kinds of choices if we're trying to remove it. And with that, we come to verse 7. And what's the first word? But... Got your pen or pencil? Circle it. So in contrast to ungodly pursuit to eliminate sadness, David now says, I'm committing myself to godly pursuit to eliminate sadness. Verse 7, verse 8. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you, Oh, lead me, O oh Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Notice there are two crucial decisions to make with our sadness. Verse 7, each person must decide, am I going to seek the Lord regardless of how I feel? Is David sad? Well, yes. But does he still worship the Lord and bow down to him in reverence? Well, you bet he does. What's he showing us here? That instead of allowing his feelings on the inside to pressure him to see God as distant or disengaged, David rather seeks to involve God in his sadness. So David is not letting his sadness get in between him and God, but rather he's allowing his sadness to press him in closer to, to help him lean into his Lord. But that's a decision. It's a decision that all of us must make. And it's not easy. In my sadness, for example, will I keep praying? In my sadness, will I keep myself in this book, in God's Word, to allow it to speak to my heart? In my sadness, will I still stay engaged in my spiritual community to allow those around me to speak into my heart? Crucial decisions. Will I keep seeking God? The second crucial decision is found in verse 8. Will I allow God to lead me? Am I willing to let him guide me so that I'm on that straight way? Lord, am I looking to you for the right way to live my life? And if we're seeking him, and if we're wanting his leadership and guidance then Psalm 32.8 gives us a great promise to hang on to where God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. But that's a decision. Seeking God even in the midst of our discouragement, depression, or sadness. 
Martin Luther was once so depressed. In fact, if you've read anything about him, you know that he had periods where he got really down. And one day his wife came downstairs wearing all black. He looked at her and said, who died? She said, God has. Well, Martin was a great theologian, and so his response was, God hasn't died. Her response was, well, then live like it and act like it. Don't you love it when God uses our spouse like the Holy Spirit to speak to us? Now, David warns us about a second set of choices. Not only choose carefully how we are going to deal with our sadness, but also choose carefully the outcomes of my sadness. Verse 9 to verse 12. Again, remember, when we're sad, what do we want? Well, obviously, we don't want to be sad anymore. What will eliminate my sadness? Well, as I mentioned, if we're facing pain, we want to feel better. If we're facing pressure, we want relief. And if we're perplexed, we want to figure things out. Those are the typical three outcomes that we perceive will eliminate our sadness. But David warns us that pursuing those three might just bring us outcomes we really don't want. So we need to be careful, for we can end up reaping ungodly outcomes. Verse 9 and verse 10, David writes, For there is no truth in their mouth, their utmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Notice, David has just described the outcomes that will happen in a person's life if he chooses ungodly responses to sadness. Look at a couple key phrases there. There will be destruction. In other words, matters are going to continue to fall apart. They will feel guilty. They will not be set free. They will fall by their own counsel. In other words, nothing will help as the downward spiral will just continue. Isn't that strong language? Why does he use such strong language like this? Because he's trying to warn us. And it's all kind of wrapped up by that last phrase of verse 10. For they have rebelled against you. Ungodly choices at their root are a rebellion against God that only leads to devastating consequences and outcomes. Okay, let's all take a deep breath now. And look at the start of verse 11. Here we go again. The word but. Here we have another contrast set up for us, just like in verse 7. David has better hopes for himself and for us than all that he's just described there in verse 8 and, yeah, verse 9 and verse 10. Rather, he's saying, our choices can allow us to reap wonderful outcomes. Verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. By the way, do you see the connection there in verse 11 between taking refuge in God, 
which is kind of a summary of, of verse 2 and 3. And the connection then, which results in what kind of an outcome? Gladness, joy, exalting. And by the way, you know the definition of exalting? Enthusiastic celebration. Boy, I tell you, when you're sad, that's about one of the last things that ever comes out of us, is an enthusiastic celebration. But that's one of the results of godly choices here. When life hurts and the pressures don't go away, and when we're puzzled by what's happening around us, God, what does he do? He promises, verse 11, I'm going to protect those that take refuge in me. He wants to come, and when we admit our sadness to him, when we ask him for his help, and we ask him to supply our needs. In fact, verse 12 ends by mentioning that the Lord, he wants to bless us when we seek him. And his blessing, notice there, is literally his favor that will be like a shield surrounding us and protecting us. Yes, life may still feel like it's out of control, but we have his promise that something only God can do, and that is he will do good for us. All of us, all of us in this room, regardless of our age or our stage in life that we are in, are going to face times of sadness and discouragement. It's just living in a broken world. It's going to happen. Yet as we close this morning, I want to just say a word to those here who are living with a sense of sadness that just will not go away. There is a possibility for any one of us in this room of having too much for too long. And when that occurs in situations like that, literally a chemical imbalance happens inside of our brains. And if your sadness has been there for a really, really long time, I am going to plead with you this morning, you need to go talk to your doctor and have a frank discussion with him or her about what's happening in your life. Because there are medicines available. Now, hear me carefully. These medicines will not fix you. They won't fix you. But they can help put you in a position to start seeing things more objectively and hear from the Lord, even at low tide. I've been there. And if you and I need to have a discussion about this, please come and talk to me. Quite a few years ago, there was a man living in Kentucky, sitting on his front porch. He had just recently retired from the post office, and that day he received his first Social Security check. He thought to himself, this is what life's going to be like for me from now on, sitting on my porch, just waiting for my check to arrive each month. He decided, I'm not going to settle for this. So he took a piece of paper and decided to make a list of everything that he had going for him all of his blessings, all of his capacities, all the unique things that were, that were a part of his life. And the list was actually quite long um, because he listed everything in the world that he could think of. And on that list was one fact, and the one fact was he was the only person on earth that knew his mother's recipe for fried chicken that used 11 different herbs and spices. So he went to a nearby restaurant and asked if he could cook some chicken, and they said, sure. 
It soon became the most popular item on the menu. So he opened his own restaurant. People poured in the door. He started opening up more restaurants. People continued to pour in the door. Eventually, Harlan Sanders sold Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises all across America and all across the world. Eventually, he retired a second time. He continued in the service of the company all the way up as, until he died as a public relations representative. Okay, so here was a man who was discouraged. Yet he looked it in the eye, recognized it was there, and then made careful choices that brought great outcomes. I have no idea if he read Psalm 5, but that's what he did. Are you feeling tired this morning? Are you feeling alone in your sadness? It is my joy to tell you you've got a Savior this morning who understands. He completely empathizes and sympathizes with the depth and nature of your sadness because He's been there. He's felt it. That's what Isaiah 53 tells us. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 